Well, this series has been uh, special for me and so many others, I feel like, because it's all about this phrase, here I am, or in Hebrew, Hanani. Go ahead and say it out loud, Hanani. Hanani, everything I am, everything I have, everything I do, I'm obedient to you. I'm listening, Lord. Speak to me. So we've looked at some of the characters of the Bible so far. We've looked at Abraham. We've looked at Jacob. And what's incredible is that every time God does a new thing, it's always in response to an available heart. So if you think about Abraham, what happens? He tells him to sacrifice his only son. And as he gets there, he becomes the God who provides. He provided the ram. Last week we talked about Jacob. Jacob was called to move his entire family to Egypt at the end of his life. Move your entire family to Egypt. And he finds out that as he goes, he he doesn't need to be afraid to go. Because as he goes, God's presence is promised to him. Not the details of the plan. So God's presence is promised to us. Something so significant. And so now we're about to look at, I would call the story that is most clearly related to calling. It's most clearly related to faith. But it's also a story that you have heard a million times if you've been in church. And I'm just going to ask you, as we read this story, to listen with new ears. So not let the lullaby effect take you. Listen to it for the first time with spiritual eyes that are open. Because we're about to talk about Moses and the burning bush. Is anybody excited for church today? Come on, the burning bush. I love it. So the title for this sermon is Moses, What is My Calling? What is my calling? And we'll get to the reasons why that's the title, but I just need to let you know right away. We live in the most anxious generation in history. Why? Because we have no idea the answer to that question for most of us. Let me prove it to you real quick. The next generation that's growing up, think about middle school, high school, and even college students right now. They're the most anxious generation in history. They've been told their whole life, what do you want to be when you grow up? And all of a sudden, it's terrifying because they have to decide They have to choose what they're supposed to do, and they have no idea what they want to do. So there's all this anxiety and this pressure to figure out, God, what is my calling? Think about those who just graduated last week. Their whole life, they got into this moment, and now you realize what? If I choose this this way, that means I'm saying no to all these ways, and this future, and that relationship. And then I got the pressure of my parents. Oh, I got to get a salary now. I got to pay for stuff. And on the other side, you got your friends telling you what to do, and oh my goodness, insurance. And wait, you go from a three-month vacation to two weeks? That's all I get? Can I get an amen somewhere? Like, literally, this is what happens, right? So then what? You get in your 30s? Congratulations, you're in your 30s. And you get there, and what happens? Reality sets in. Did I miss my calling? Am I going to do this the rest of my life? Now i got responsibilities. i got a job. i got to take care of these kids. And I'm on this wheel. It's already going. Is it too late to me even respond or change careers or figure out what's next? Welcome to your 40s, 50s, retired. Guess what? You made it. You're successful. And now you have all of this social responsibility with that success. And now you're made to feel guilty because you have resources and you're trying to figure out how to actually, what to do with those resources. And I read a quote this week from a guy who was in that stage and he said this and I thought it was powerful. Success flatters us on the outside while significance eludes us on the inside. I was like, oh my goodness, I don't want to be retired ever. So it's like, (laughs) keep going. And then I was was feeling all these things. And I mean, number one, aren't you glad you came to church today? Isn't this exciting? Um, And I thought about my calling in my life, because I have to, right? I thought about the first time I ever got asked to speak anywhere, and it was when I was 17, and it was at a school assembly. Let me tell you, the crowd was electric, all right? I'm at this school assembly, and I walk on stage, and the first time I start talking in front of the school, my leg starts shaking in front of everybody. So much so that my voice is actually like, uh, like that as as I'm talking. 
it was actually the most embarrassing moment. I was so humiliated. I remember walking off the stage being like, I will never get on a stage ever again in my life. Fast forward a few months, Miles is like, hey, I want you to get on stage at our youth group, and I want you to talk about how you followed Jesus through your mom having cancer. And I was like, I don't want to do that. He's like, I'll write the sermon. It's fine. Just you go give it, right? And so I'm like, all right, I'll fine, I'll do it. And I remember that night, I paced a hole like this, back and forth the whole night, because I was afraid that if I stopped moving, my leg would start moving. So I just kept going back and forth. And afterwards, I remember walking off that stage, and Miles looked at me. He said, you know what? I don't think that's the last time you'll be on a stage talking about Jesus. Maybe this is your calling. And I remember feeling like, no, it's not. <laughs> I was so overwhelming and exhausting. But I read this book. Around that time, it was by a guy named Oscar Nissen, and it was called The Call, and he said this in the book, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. He said, we live in an age of material plenty and spiritual poverty. We have to come back to our calling. So the vision is that we're going to let Moses be the map for how we receive this calling. So if you have your Bibles, hold it up, hold it up. So I thought about what to do for this moment, and I feel like this is the best way. If you go ahead and you automatically send every call that you get of the number that you don't have saved to voicemail, keep your Bible up. Automatically, I'm sending you to voicemail. Keep it up. Automa All right, how about if it's a number you already have saved, and you're automatically just going to send a voicemail anyways because they're calling you. Look at the next generation. There they are. They like texting. Everybody turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Just trying to help some parents out for a second. Um, so we're going to go to Exodus chapter 3. But I need to make sure that we're on the same page. Because what happened at the end of the story? Jacob goes to Egypt. And then a, a few years go by. And Joseph dies. And all the influence they had in Egypt kind of dies with it. 400 years actually pass by. And the Hebrew nation is actually growing in population. So the Pharaoh issues an edict that says, we are going to kill every Hebrew baby boy as they are born. So what happens is Moses is born. And he's actually hidden into a basket and put into a river. And as he floats down the Nile River, Pharaoh's daughter reaches out and draws him out of the water. Moses, by the way, means drawn from the water. He also will one day take his people through the water. He's drawn from the water. And he actually is raised in an Egyptian household, in Pharaoh's household, for 40 years. 40 years. Think about this. You're in Pharaoh's household. It means you're enjoying the best drinks, the best food, the pleasures of the empire. But what happens is, is that he takes matters into his own hands. And he sees a Hebrew getting beaten by an Egyptian. And at 40 years old, kills the Egyptian. Pharaoh finds out about it and wants to kill him. So he flees to the desert. And as he arrives in the desert, he spends another 40 years in the desert. Wondering, did I miss God's plan for my life? Have I really screwed it up? I was supposed to be this destined deliverer. I heard one pastor say this week, he went from the palace to the pasture. Now he's in the middle of nowhere. But he gets a call from God. Let's read it together. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Which, by the way, fire always symbolizes God's presence. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not 
burn up. Which, just stop right there for a second. Notice how it wasn't until God got his attention that his word landed with him. Distraction is the greatest enemy to your calling. But when he gets your attention, you have to listen. Look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within a bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, so he calls, says, here I am. Then what happens? He says, come close, but not too close, because you're standing on holy ground. In fact, he says, take off your sandals, which, by the way, is a symbol of humility and reverence. And also, I thought about if I asked you guys to take off your sandals as you came in here, and I thought, we don't have strong enough ventilation for that. (laughs) But I also thought, I want my job when Miles gets back. Um, But it's a sign of humility and reverence. Why? Because it's not that the ground is holy. It's because God is holy. Which, by the way, this is so fascinating. The call of Abraham was the first time we heard the word love. Sacrifice the son whom you love. This is the first mention in the Bible of the word holy. And it's in reference to God because he's there. But you know what I love about it, too, is that he kind of goes, just in case we're missing which God you are, he goes into each one. I'm the God of Abraham, meaning I'm the God who provided the ram. I'm the God who blessed Isaac, the destined son. I'm the God of Jacob. And I love that at Jacob is when it says he hid his face. You see that? Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. What happened in Jacob? God wrestled with Jacob. And in Genesis 32 or 33, I can't remember off the top of my head, that's where literally he says, Jacob named the place Peniel because I saw God face to face and I was spared. Meaning, if you see the God of Jacob face to face, you die. So Moses is like, look down, I'm afraid. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Wow. So there's a few things that are happening right here. And I think we need to point it out. One is there's the power of God kind of on display, but there's also like the personhood of God. So here's what I've noticed in a lot of college students that I deal with. You treat God like he's just this like higher power, like this God, like this eye in the sky, this big deity. And so what happens is we believe that he's this powerful God, but is distant from us. So that makes him impersonal. That makes him amoral. It means that we can do whatever we want because he's disconnected from us. So what happens is people live their lives that way as God is, it's like trying to have a relationship with lightning or thunder. He's pow- it's powerful, but you don't have a relationship to it. So what happens is that people that view God as just this higher power, you end up living your life devoid of meaning or purpose or calling. So you have this like higher power, but what does God say here? God says, I saw them. He's personified. I saw them. I heard them. I was concerned about them. Why? Because yes, God is all powerful, but God is personal. Yes, he's awe-inspiring, but he's really active. 
Yes, he's self-evident. He's self-existent. Yet at the same time, he's intimately involved in our life. Isn't it amazing? He says, I'm not just the God who's going to free them. No, I'm the God who heard them. There's power in the fact that not only is he a powerful being, he's also a personal God. And he wants a relationship. He's saying this to Moses, and this is an unbelievable moment. So then what does he say? Now go. It's time to rescue them. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites? Who am I? This is the first of two questions I'm going to put up on the screen that we have to wrestle with. First one is this. Who am I? Who am I? John Calvin uh, in the Calvin Institute says this, we never know who we are until we know who God is. We never know who we are until we know who God is. And so what is really being said here is Moses is saying, look, I am not, think about him, I'm not worthy to be the one called to go. In fact, you know who I am? I'm a murderer. I'm a fugitive. I'm a failure. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm a nobody. Who am I? But if you think about God's design and his story, what happened? He spent 40 years in Egypt learning all the ways of the Egyptians, learning how their, the road systems worked, learning how the, the power dynamic was. But he also spent 40 years in the desert, learning the way of the desert, learning how to shepherd people and sheep. I mean, for what? For a purpose. And all of those 40 years in the desert did what? They produced humility. They produced humility in him. And for me, it's crazy because I've always heard like, oh, it was his disqualifications that led God to choose him. I think it's his, his awareness of his disqualifications that led God to choose him. There was a humility in it. Who am I? Who am I? Here I am. But who am I to be sent by you? And I think for us, sometimes we treat God like we're at recess. You remember recess? Oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. What happened? They never got picked. We're, sometimes I feel like we treat God like we're like, here I am, pick me to, to start a ministry. Here I am, pick me to go do a, a new thing or start a new venture or a new business or something. But what, what does God say here? He says, hey, I'm going to choose the one who is humble before me instead of the one who's loudest. Why, why was it Moses? Here I am, but who am I? Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. That's why I'm choosing you, because I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So your calling is not about you. And fulfillment of your calling always results in a life of worship. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So this is why names are so important. This is why at every baby dedication we say the name because the name encompasses the reality of who that person is. So what he's really asking, he's like, who should I, what's your name? Is like, who are you? I want to know you. Tell me who you are. So the second question to your calling is this. Who are you? And this is you asking God this question. Who are you? Who should I say? Who shall I say sent me? Verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I don't know about you, but as, a, as an American reading this, sometimes it doesn't like hit. Well, when I'm reading that, I was thinking this like epic moment. We're like, who are you, God? And I thought he was going to like rain down. I'm this unbelievably powerful being. What does he say? I am who I am. And I read that and I was kind of like, okay, 
Like, I don't know if you ever read it and you're like, I feel like I can't feel that. And so I want to tell you a, a little illustration to help us all feel that. I want to tell you about the time that I was the most intimidated in my life for a conversation. I was so intimidated for this conversation. It was with Jeff Griffin to convince, his, to convince him to let me marry his daughter. Okay? Husbands in the room, you know what I'm talking about. This conversation that I was so nervous for, I was trying to figure out, right? I'm this semi-broke youth pastor who I started driving Uber because I didn't have enough money to, like, save up for a ring, and I knew that she deserved a nice ring. So I was started driving Uber on the side. I had, I literally, I remember as I'm preparing for this conversation, I remember I had spreadsheets of how I could prove to him that his daughter would not go hungry if she married me. And I had all these different, like, resources and things, and I had every question I thought out, okay, where are we going to live? Okay, got that. And I had every single thing in my mind as I'm, like, preparing for this conversation. So I call him. I'm like, hey, I want you to meet me in the fanciest restaurant in Athens, Georgia. And it's actually called The Last Resort, which is ironic now. <laughs> Didn't think about it at the time. Called The Last Resort. He meets me at this restaurant. And I mean, you know, we both know why we're here. You ever have that feeling? You're like, how much small talk do I say before I just get into my spiel? Well, it was immediate. <laughs> I was like, hey, I know that I'm here with you. And then the guy comes up, the waiter. You know the waiter moment where they're like pouring water and you're like, <laughs> I just started the conversation. Then he walks away. And I start into it. Okay, so I, I, I drove Uber, okay? And I get in my conversation. I'm trying to figure it out. And he stops me. And he looks at me and he says, I only have one question. Why do you want to marry my daughter? And I remember looking back, and uh, I won't go into the details. Um, I'm sure it was like Nicholas Sparks worthy. <laughs> I, did, I went into it, all the amazing things about who she is and all that. And afterwards, he said, okay, here, this is how it's going to go. He said, I want to spend the rest of our dinner telling you why I believe that you're the man anointed to marry my daughter. And he spent the next 45 minutes pouring blessing into my life. So I felt like that night I gained a second father. If you have a girl, by the way, in the room, you can steal that idea. <laughs> and Jeff Griffin, if you're watching this, can't wait for Thanksgiving. It's going to be awesome. Um, but just, just so you know, I left that conversation feeling so filled up. But the point of the story is not that. The point of the story is I was leaving, and I began to think about this. Every single reason I gave him for why I wanted to marry his daughter was not necessarily unique to just her. And I mean this, go with me here. I remember saying, well, she's so beautiful. Okay, well, this girl over here won a beauty pageant. Okay, well, she's so kind and self-sacrificing and serving. Okay, well, this girl over here, she's literally going to be a missionary. Okay, well, she is so athletic. Okay, well, this girl over here, she's going to be D1 one day. Okay, well, she's so, no matter what characteristic I said, ultimately he could have found someone else that had that characteristic. But you know why I wanted to marry his daughter? Because her name was Shelby Ray Griffin. That's the only way I could fully encompass our relationship. It's the only way that I could fully communicate who she is, our memories, the experiences that we've had together, the different characteristics and the combination of her design and knowing, like, I want to marry Shelby. I don't want to marry a characteristic of who that is. I want to know Shelby. And this is what Moses does when he says, who is the God that is calling me? Who are you? He says, I am who I am. And just so you know what that means, it means that he will be whatever he needs to be. He would meet the needs of the people. In the Old Testament, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, what happens? He will say to his people, I am your healer. I am your deliverer. I am your refuge. I am your strength. I am the one who will pull through for you. And then John himself, when he's recording the life of Jesus, does the exact same thing. Think about the I am statements. 
You guys know what I'm talking about, the I am statements? Jesus said these very specific I am statements. So basically he would say something like, you know, someone would come to him and be like, hey, are you hungry? I'm the bread of life. Oh, you're living in darkness? I'm the light of the world. Oh, you're afraid? I'm the gate. I'm the door. Oh, you don't know where to go? You're full of anxiety? You're full of struggle and stress? I'm the good shepherd. Listen to my voice. Oh, you're spiritually dead right now? Guess what? I'm the resurrection and the life. Oh, you're listening to lies constantly coming at you from the enemy? Well, guess what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by the way, if you don't know what your calling or your purpose is in life, I'm the vine. Which means that if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit in this life. This is what Jesus did. He would use the I am statements to be whatever the humanity needed him to be. And it's beautiful. And this is the relationship to Moses about calling. So I want to get on the same page real quick. Calling, by the way, is just fulfilling your God-given purpose. Purpose is why you have breath in your lungs. It's why you exist. So I have a working definition I'm going to throw on the screen. God's design of you plus God's desire for you. See, God is both creator and caller. Your life purpose is who you were created to be and who you were called to be. So God designed you, and he also has desires for you. So if you think about it, what are the questions? First one, who am I? I feel like our culture is obsessed with this right now. Like, who am I? I, I want to know my identity. Hello, Enneagram. Hello, personality test. Hello, birth order test. You go to a Christian coffee shop, you better know that you're about to hear about, oh, this is my identity, this is my identity, this is my identity. Why? Because people are obsessed in our culture with, who am I? But the second one is the one we really struggle with. What is God's desire for me? What am I supposed to do? How do I discern this? I don't even know what to do with my life. So this is what you need to know. Your primary calling in life is three things. By God, to God, for God. Your primary calling in life is by God, to God, for God. It's not what you do. It's not your career. It's not the fact that you're a dad. It's not the fact that you're a mom. It's not where you go one day. It's not the fact that you go overseas or you stay here in Auburn. Your primary calling in life is by God, to God, and for God. And guess what? All of us in this room then have what's known as secondary callings. You don't just have one calling. That's your primary calling. And your secondary callings are father, mother, dreamer, businessman. See, but all of those things find their value in the first call. Seek first the kingdom of God. So all of your callings find their value there. And i got to be honest, I'm a church person. Church has failed at this for way too long. Can we just be honest? You know what I told, when I told people, hey, I think I'm going into ministry. You know what people said to me? That's so awesome. You're about to be a full-time servant of Christ. I was like, wait a second. Does that make you a part-time servant of Christ? <laughs> like, I'm trying to understand what you're saying here. And, and you know what's interesting is that the Catholic Church, the reason why the Protestant Reformation came about, uh, about is because the Catholic Church had found that certain people, the priests, had anointing. They were the ones who heard from God. So what happened is that abuse of power caused some, some ruffled feathers, right? So then Martin Luther steps in, and he's like, no, no, no. You can be a farmer. You can be a merchant. You can be whatever, but you all have access to God. You have spiritual significance, and you have dignity just because the God of heaven sent Jesus. And now guess what? There's no separation between the spiritual elect and everyone else. We're all equal, right? That's great. And you're like, yes. But it meant that the pendulum swung a little too far over this way. So this is what happened after this is a history lesson, by the way. In the 1600s, the Puritan era ended the Industrial Revolution. What happened is, is that words like employment, work, trade, occupation became interchangeably used with calling. So what happened is 
Christians didn't have a calling anymore. Citizens had a job. And the jobs then became holy. We began to worship the job. This isn't just me saying this. Henry Ford, I hope you guys know him, Ford Motors, said work is the salvation of the human race. Calvin Coolidge, the president of the United States, said this, a man who builds a factory builds a temple. See, our secondary callings began finding their value over the primary calling. And what happened? We did exactly what the Tower of Babel did. We began to worship what we made instead of the God who made us. So now we have to somehow find the middle ground. Okay, so what does that mean for me? What does that mean? What is Moses trying to say here? Look at the calling he has in verse 12. It says this, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. After you fulfill the calling that I'm calling you to right now, you will come back here and you will worship. So I'm going to add to my definition from earlier. God's design of you made him visible in the world. This is what's crazy. You had no choice in that. You had no choice in that, which means that you don't follow God and reflect his image. Guess what? You do it anyways. No matter whether you choose to follow him or you don't choose to follow him, every single human being on this planet, no matter how they vote, no matter what they look like, no matter where they live in this world, guess what? They are all made in the image of God, which means that we have value, we have dignity, we have purpose. Why? Because of the God who called us. And you had no choice in that. You didn't ask to be born. Think about that with my one and a half year old. He didn't ask to be born when he's acting the fool, right? God's design of you made him visible in the world. So what does that mean for us? Because there is some responsibility in that. God's desire for you is to make him visible to the world. God's desire for you is to make him visible to the world. So I think that this is something that if you're wondering what point blank the calling is of God in your life, I believe in whatever spaces that you live in, whatever desires that you have, whatever gifting you've been given, I believe it's called, you're literally called by God to make him visible to the world. You want to know what is my calling in life? How can you make God visible to those around you? How can you do that? That's what calling basically is. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, does this have anything to do with Moses? Because I'm like, is this just my thoughts? And of course, I went over to old trusty Hebrews 11, which explains everything about these Old Testament characters. And it says this, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Isn't that amazing? Moses' life reflected that truth. So this week, um, our staff team went to a creative conference in Atlanta. And I'm sitting there, and I'm honestly like, I should be working on this sermon. I shouldn't be here. And I'm thinking about it. It's on a Thursday. And the speaker gets up, and he starts, and he says, I have a whole message plan kind of thing. But he's like, but I just never forget. I was sitting right there when the pastor stood up here and said, who am I? Who am I? I'm like, okay, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, this is what I, I think it's, this is literally what I'm about to preach on. I'm like thinking, listen, am I about to steal this? Yes, I think I am. And he says this, I am not, but I know I am. He said that. He said, I remember when someone said that, and then he goes, so anyways, and goes into his message. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is it. That is what, who, who am I, and who are you, and all of that. This is what it means for us to walk in the calling. It means that we say, I am not, but I know I am. You know Jesus. I am not, but I know I am. So we're, I think it's on the screen. Yeah, it's on the screen. Why don't we just say it out loud together to make sure it sinks in, all right? I am not, 
but I know I am. Say it like you actually care this time. I am not, but I know I am. One more, just for fun. I am not, but I know I am. I know I am. I know Jesus. I know the one who gave it all for me. Colossians 1, the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I am not, but I know I am. So, again, I quoted the seven I am statements of Jesus earlier, but as I was preparing, I'm, I was like, I am not, but I know I am. I wonder if Jesus had any I am not statements. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has three I am not statements. So I'm going to show them to you. And as I was thinking about Moses, it was like I almost fell out of my chair looking at how similar the calling of Moses is to the calling of Jesus. So we're going to read them together. Put on the screen. I am not alone. First I am not statement of Jesus. I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. What happened with Moses? Moses receives the call to go, and God the Father says what? I will be with you. So you and your calling, you're not alone. What's the second I am not statement? He says, John chapter 8. Notice how they're all in John chapter 8. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He's talking to the Pharisees. I told you that you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. What does God say to Moses? I will come down from above. I will come down and rescue. And what does Moses say in response to that? What shall I call you? Who are you? Guess what the Pharisees say. Look at verse 25. Who are you? They asked. And this is where Jesus says his eighth I am statement. In fact, this is actually the only time where Jesus directly quotes Exodus 3, the burning bush moment. And he says this to the Pharisees after they say, who are you? He says this, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am God visible. I am Yahweh. I am God. And I was the one who spoke to Moses through that burning bush. Before Abraham was, I am. There's one more that I kind of got confused about. There's one more I am not statement. It said this, I am not seeking glory for myself. He's talking about the kingdoms of this world. Jesus was telling them, I'm not seeking glory for myself. I'm seeking glory to the Father, the one who sent me. He said, I could, but I'm not. I remember thinking to myself, this is kind of confusing because I felt like we were on such a roll, Moses. Jesus, it was kind of connecting and it was perfect. And then I thought, okay, let me just look back at Exodus 3. Let's go back to the very beginning. Exodus 3, verse 1. Check it out. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he went to the far side, away from Egypt. But why is it called the mountain of God? Because Mount Horeb has another name. It's actually the same mountain 
as Mount Sinai. Guess what happens on Mount Sinai? Moses is leading the people out into the wilderness. Moses goes up on a mountain. He's been pleasing to God. And he finally says this question or this statement. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And what happens? He says, no, I can't do that. You'll be obliterated because I'm so holy. So I'm going to hide you and I'm going to pass by you in my back. Your back will be turned. And as he passes, what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. And as he goes by like that, what does it say right after? It says that Moses fell down and worshiped God. What was the call? What was the sign of the calling that we found in this story? You will come back to this mountain and worship me. This is after he'd gone through all the different stories. This is after all the moments of leading the people through the water. And for us, it's where our calling is. Your calling, making God visible to the world around you, making invisible God visible, is this. You are not alone. God is with you. You're not of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. You're not here for your glory, but for his. And all this clicked for me. Because what happened with Moses? Moses was called by God to deliver God's people from slavery. Jesus was called by God to deliver God's people from sin. And this is the moment where it clicked for me. I was thinking about it. From a thorny bush that was on fire, Jesus spoke what to Moses? I'll bring you through the furnace of Egypt. You will not be consumed. In fact, as you get to the waters, I'll part them. And in fact, when you get to the desert, I'll lead you. And in fact, when you don't know how to lead your people, I'll give you a law. This is about Jesus. The calling of Moses is not about Moses. It's about Jesus. And what's incredible to me is that Jesus also is the one who has the right to your life because of what he lived through as well. What happened with the bush? It was on fire, but it was not consumed. What happened to Jesus? He was spit on. He was mocked, he was blindfolded, he was punched, he was whipped. And it says this, that as he was going up to the cross, they crowned him with thorns from a thorny bush. As he goes up the mountain, to do what? To give his life. Jesus fulfilled his calling. Guess what that calling was? To seek and save the lost. To give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus made the invisible God visible. And God's message to Moses was through a burning bush, but God's message to us is through a Roman cross. And as we look to the blood of Jesus that was poured out on behalf of us, now we have real calling. Now we have something to get excited about. Now we have something stirring in our souls and we think about the fact that I will never be consumed except for by the the love of God displayed on a cross. So I talked about how I burned a hole in the stage. And if you remember that moment, it's talking about this. Burned a hole in the stage in our community group. That summer, we went to summer camp, the final summer camp, before we leave to go to college. And Miles, if you didn't know this, was my community group leader. So there was 12 of us in this little circle. And he looks at each one of us and he says, hey, I want you to tell me, what is your plan to follow Jesus when you get to college? And so I'm kind of at the end of the row. And he kind of starts going to each person. First guy says something like, well, um, you know, I'm definitely going to see if I'm going to have fun and, like, try to figure out if I'm going to join a club. 
And then the next guy goes, well, I think I'm going to join a fraternity. I already got a bid to this thing. And, you know, we kind of had a little thing, but I'll be the light in the fraternity. And then he goes to the next guy, well, well, I think I'm going to, you know, at least check out downtown to make sure I don't want to go downtown, like, when I get there. And, and then the next guy kind of goes, and it goes person by person by person by person by person. And I was honestly, before it even got to me, as soon as Miles says, Gage, what's your plan? I couldn't even let him finish the question. And I was so mad. I was like, are you kidding me? We've been together four years. You're going to waste your life when you go to college on things like partying and drinking and girls and all these things. What are you doing, man? Y'all are my best friends. Are you serious? You're going to throw it all away for that? What are you talking about? And I began to feel this, this holy, felt like this righteous anger within me bursting out. And I felt like God was stirring something in me. And I was like, I don't want to lose y'all. I don't want to lose y'all to this world. Jesus gave his life for this world, and he gave his life for you. And I remember that was not as eloquent when I probably said it, but I remember in that moment, I felt this fire within me. Afterwards, I went to Miles. He looked at me, he goes, yeah, that wasn't normal. He goes, I think that maybe you are called to ministry. He said, because I don't think people are normally that passionate about that. You know what's crazy is I know it's easy as you're watching this in Birmingham or you're watching this and me talk about this in real life right now is, I think about I am not. I think about how much I'm a sinner. I think about how young I am up here. I think about all the ways that I am not. But I can tell you I know I am. I can tell you I know Jesus. And what's amazing is my calling has not changed. And so I hope this lands for some of you. My calling is literally, I want you to be burning with the love of God. And I want you to not waste your life. And I know some of you in this room or some of you listening or watching, I know you're one decision away one drink away, one bad decision away from ruining your life forever, from stepping away from the calling that God has on your life. And I'm just telling you right now, if I could give you one piece of advice, don't do it. One piece of advice is come back. Come back. Because the love of God was visibly displayed on a Roman cross so that now you and I could go tell the world about that love. So I want us as we kind of close, to remember the very reason why we even are here today, and it's because of Jesus' blood poured out and his body that was broken for us. So if you want to take out your communion cups right now, and if you didn't get one on the way in, our team would love to come bring you one. Husbands, you can always pray over your wives in this time. This is a chance for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. The reason why he gave his life is to give us life. And this is your time. So after a few moments, my, uh, Michael's going to come up here. We're going to sing a song called Set a Fire. And I believe for some of you, you've lost that passion. You've lost that excitement. You've, you can't even remember the last time you felt burning love for God. And we're just going to sing a song, asking God to set a fire within us, a burning fire. So take some time. Pray with your families. Take communion. If you don't believe in Jesus, don't feel like you have to participate. And we'll worship in just a second.